welcome to the Bellway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links at the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's always great, but it'd be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting those podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, that's fine. Sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow anyway, and so that is always greatly appreciated. In this week's show, we're going to talk about sort of this last week in politics, uh, some of the things that happened, mainly that, you know, you had the Kyle Rittenhouse case that, that and the verdict that came out from that. So we're going to go through a little bit of that, uh, kind of talk about, you know, how much does this matter, how much does this not matter moving forward, and then hit some polling data towards the end. So kind of sort of a, a recap week as we head into the Thanksgiving holiday week. So that's the agenda for this week's show. Can get right in here. Uh, as, as I've posted in a few places where I've kind of moved more towards uh, jotting down notes instead of typing them out. And so I've got the legal pad here full of the topics and sort of ideas I wanted to hit for this week. Uh, I, personally, I would describe this sort of uh, this past week sort of as a weird week in politics because you had everyone, at least from what I could tell. Uh, I know I can, for me, I can kind of get in a bubble where I'm focused sort of on things that only I'm really interested in and may have limited interest in other people. And so I was kind of ignoring this case as it was moving forward. I typically ignore a lot of these crime-type cases. I realized that everyone was jumping on this one because it had broader strokes when you're looking across the, the entire country. Uh, but this is... This is really this case was less interesting for what happened in the trial. What happened in the trial makes sense, particularly if you have a legal background, uh, and it, it, it's less interesting for what happened inside the trial than what's happening outside of it. Uh, there's this, uh, you know, as I'm sort of wa- you know watching everyone react to to this case. You know, you have on the one side there's this really bizarre trend among my more liberal friends who are trying to build up the people who who were shot as these martyrs or these victims and and doing all these special social media posts and that makes no sense to me whatsoever particularly you know if you're going to do that you might want to factor in the backgrounds of everyone involved but then on the on the flip side you've also got one of my more of my you know right leaning friends trying to build up written house to be more of more of a hero here which also doesn't really make any sense here. And so everyone is, is using this less about what the facts are on, on the ground, which I think one of the reasons that the defense team did a, did a good job in this case was because they did a very strong job of establishing exactly what happened and then allowed those facts to, to plow these big holes in the prosecution's case that they built here that was that was they they did a fantastic job in doing that one thing and you know that's what you would want from a good defense team they were able to establish what happened and then just hammer 
the prosecution team over and over and over on those key points. And from there, we've had all the these narratives that have built up from out, outside from that, which have very little bearing on, on what happened and what matters moving forward. Uh, see, you know, like I, I think in the end, the jury actually got this one right. This is one of those cases where I think they did. Uh, I think if you line up the law and you line up the facts, what the charges that the prosecution team went for and what the facts were on the ground, those two did not link up. And I think you have to go with a not guilty verdict in that case. I think this is also a situation where the prosecution team just flat out overcharged. That's not uncommon. You know, watching that specific prosecutor, I have no idea what was running through his head most of those times. Some of the things he was doing, I, you wouldn't, most one and two L law students would know not to do some of the things that he was doing. Uh, specifically, his insistence upon referencing uh, Rittenhouse's decision to remain quiet. You, you cannot, as a lawyer, in a criminal trial, reference in any way the use of constitutional rights like that in a way to pr- try to prejudice a jury. You just can't do that. And so even if the jury had come back with a guilty verdict, I thought the defense team had set themselves up pretty cleanly to destroy any kind of verdict on appeal because of the actions of the prosecution team. I thought they had preserved that pretty well. Uh, and, I, and I was actually shocked to see that from a prosecutor. Most prosecutors that I know are smart enough to know that they can't do that and realize they'll lose their case if they do something like that. And I know on social media, everyone's throwing these images back and forth of the prosecutor holding the gun and pointing it, you know, with his finger on the trigger. Obviously, all, all that kind of stuff is bad. But in reality, when a, when a, when a prosecutor who is a state actor is trying to to prejudice a jury against the use of a constitutional right, which is the right to remain silent here. That's the one that was in play here. When he's doing that, that directly biases and can impact the case. I guess it's been that type of thing has been covered at Supreme Court numerous times. That applies in Wisconsin. It applies and it applies in all fifty states. And so, it was really strange to see that. And again, I think the jury ended up getting this case right in the end. Uh, having the video helped a lot. The testimony of some of the witnesses really backed up what the defense case was here. Uh, the focus on this on the back end, where people were saying, "Oh, state li- he went across state lines," and you see Souther saying, "Well, he shouldn't have been there," and it's like, "Well, no one should have been there." And the state lines thing doesn't matter. That doesn't factor into any of the any of the things that the prosecution team is arguing here. You, you have, you know, he shouldn't have been there. Well, yeah, he shouldn't have been there. The other people shouldn't have been there either. No one should have been there. That entire event was a disaster beyond what was happening just in this small segment of what happened that evening. So it's just, it's it's frustrating. And, and maybe this is just... This is just a lawyer talking where, you know, you have, you, I, in law school, everyone leans generally when you hit criminal law and, and, and constitutional criminal procedure, everyone leans either toward more towards the defense and more towards prosecution. I naturally usually lean more towards the defense side in most of these cases. I'm not going to favor most of his prosecutors, even though I have several of them who are friends. I just typically and naturally not going to lean in their direction, uh, but 
I thought this was a pretty clear-cut case for the defense. An awful situation, obviously, but I thought that the jury got this correct, and I just don't see it mattering much beyond that. I mean, I see some of my, my more liberal friends trying to say, oh, well, this sets a precedent for yada da 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 and no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. This is a local case that was tried, and a jury came to a conclusion it matters in that case. There's no precedential value there. There, there there's, It solves this one story that happened in one city on one night. It doesn't say anything beyond that. Now you can say, oh, the only way it matters is if you're trying to make it an issue in these broader cultural wars. But that's just you trying to spin up a narrative. Other than that, it solves, it provides an answer and a conclusion to a very specific instance on a very specific night. And that's about it. That's about it. And I, I, I you know, again, I, I don't think you have to spin it up to be something. You don't need to spin up these people to be something that, that, that more than they're not. This was about the actions that happened on one night, interpreting that and, and, and figuring out where they fit in under the scope of law. Moving forward, I mean, I think the thing that needs to happen, I think the Rittenhouse needs should actually kind of lay low, get out of the public eye, and try to quietly rebuild his life here uh, because, uh, you know, he needs to do that. He's a young kid, and he, he needs to basically just get out of the public eye and wisely step aside and let all this stuff pass by. Uh, you know, I think this thing where you've got Fox News running a special, that is just awful, and they shouldn't be doing that. That's And it's not just, they're obviously trying to cash in and, and do something here, but, but the other thing is that it, it, it puts him in a bad position. It makes him look even even worse here and, and does bad things for his life moving forward. I mean, I, I, the Onion had, had, I mean, I laughed when I saw it, but the Onion had sort of a tongue-in-cheek thing where it said that Cal Rittenhouse was uh, was convicted of having to appear at, at CPAC for the next 45 years. And, and their point should be kind of well taken there because you have all these people who are around him who want to profit off of his notoriety at the moment. These cable talk show hosts on Fox and other conservatives, they want to use him to be able to build their own personal platforms and make money off of him. And I think he should just get out of Dodge and and, and leave them on the dust. Don't play into those types of games because none of those people, not a single solitary one, has his best interests at heart. One of the best things that happened to him early on in this case was that he ditched and his defense team was able to ditch the people like Lynn Wood and some of these other morons who don't know anything about law but were clearly trying to get money off of his existence and he actually had a real defense team. That is the only reason that he got the the verdict that he did because he had an actual defense team helping him out. That's it. And these others, the you know, these grifters, these Linwoods who are trying to use him to make more money for themselves and gain more notoriety for themselves, don't have his best interest at heart. So I think he needs to step out of the public eye and just kind of move on, quietly rebuild his life. Uh, you know, it's going to be difficult because of just what happened, the people who are around him and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, it, it's tragic. I feel for him. 
for everybody involved there, you, you know, this thing is being made to something far more than what it actually is. The media coverage of it has just been awful. Like I said, the prosecutorial team, the main prosecutor specifically, was was grotesque in some of the things that he was doing. But ultimately here, this is a case that only mattered to the people involved and has no ramifications, or at least it shouldn't have any ramifications beyond that. It doesn't say anything towards broader trends of, you know, self-defense or gun rights or anything like that because this is just a specific case in a one city. So, you know, the other question that I've gotten, um, people have asked, you know, well, can he sue for defamation because of all the different things that some of these people can say? And I don't think he could try. I don't think he would he would have as successful of an experience doing that because he... He has become somewhat of a public figure as, a, as the source of this trial. And because everything was publicly broadcasted from that trial room, people can espouse all these different opinions and just say, well, you know, that was my thought at the moment. The jury ruled otherwise. I just don't think you're going to be able to, to win a defamation case when he's been made somewhat of a public figure here to do anything moving forward. This is not like the Sandman case where you had kids who were made, who were private citizens and were made a public thing and attacked and defamed and smeared on the basis of a lie. This is a little bit different because you're talking about a court case, you're talking about getting facts and establishing the facts and waiting for a jury verdict. It's a little bit different there. And... Where this kind of kicks in a little bit more with broadly, you know, I talked about how this is being made in something more than what it actually is. Uh, I was I was watching the White House's reaction to this, and I, and I actually thought Joe Biden had some very good initial responses to this. His first statement was good. Uh, when reporters initially asked him about the case, he talked about having to stand by the jury system. You know, of course, he said things like, you know, we need to do more society, do more work, no, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, you have to stand by a, a judicial decision, what the jury has decided to do there, not going to attack them. Uh, and all that was great. Uh, he also made some mention of, you know, we don't need to have any more violence or anything. And I thought, actually, this was an instance maybe where the White House might be being smart here and issuing some smart stuff, trying to get people to cool down. And it turned out that was just Joe Biden doing his own thing, because immediately after he made those good comments, the actual White House stepped in and started, you know, quote unquote, cleaning all that up. Um you had staffers with the White House saying this was, it was an awful decision. You had Harris running out, calling it a bad decision and attacking everything. And then the White House itself released a cleaned up statement for Biden where they attacked the decision and so on and so forth. And so, you know, I, you know, I, I joke and call them the real White House, but this is where this is where, you know, I wrote in the newsletter. This is where Ron Klain comes in. This is where he, his sycophants and all the people who are with him there who think on the same terms of some of these deranged people who spend all their day on Twitter. This is what they how they view the case and how they have gotten all mixed up on this. And this is where Joe Biden it would be better for if Joe Biden was actually just going, you know, off the cuff on this because he's actually reading the situation correctly. Where is his staff is so hopelessly hooked up to social media and going off whatever is happening on the far left, and that's the only thing that matters to them. Again, I think Biden's initial instincts and his initial reactions were good. It's the follow-ups 
that have been bad and have reflected sort of the crazy land stuff that you see on, you know, the farthest far lefty that you know on Facebook or, you know, the crazy land leftist people on Twitter. It's all those kinds of, of groups. And so uh, this is this is once again, this is where where you have sort of the, the real power brokers within the White House. And I think that most of this emanates from Ron Klain and emanates out from there where they are trying to get every applause line from the far left that they can. And this is them saying, listen, we're in the White House and we're, we're making sure that he's he's right there. You know, he's in the fight. He, he's thinking along your lines, too. And the White House is picking the far left version of every cultural battle that comes up. When in reality, Biden was right. You just kind of need to say, you know, accept this, move on. Don't damage things, you know, keep working. Instead, they're you know they're sending in the entire White House and spending more of its prestige in a pointless battle here. But again, this is this is par for course for them. This is what they've done on on everything. Biden may make an offhand remark that's actually good and on point, and then the White House comes back and cleans it up, and it's something far worse and far dumb. And they should have just let him speak from off the cuff, even if it is just kind of word salad. At first, he eventually comes around and says something somewhat coherent. But this is one of the reasons that I think you're seeing this White House stumble around and, and flail so much because they are not, they don't understand why they got elected. They don't understand that Biden was seen as more of a moderate figure by the electorate and that he would handle things, situations like this, more as a moderate, or at least culturally sensitive to everyone involved, and just trying to get everyone to move on and be on the same page. The White House is trying to wade in, get him to wade in, and fight every last single storyline that pops up and fight it kind of like Trump would. Trump would have been all over this case. He would have been all over everything. He would have tweeted it. He would have given responses. He would have called into shows. And while Biden's not doing all those things, he is consistently doing the same thing where he tips the scale in favor of his thing. Now, you, and you might say, well, you know, he's a Democrat. I would, ex- you know, I would expect that. But that's not why people voted for him in droves. They wanted out of that cycle with Trump. And here Biden is doing the same thing, or at least his staff is, just on the opposite end. They don't understand how and why they got elected. They don't understand how they won the primary. I mean, it's ironic when you look at, at Biden and his administration and you look at that that entire race all over again. They fundamentally don't understand why they won. They did the right things to win, primarily because the, the pandemic shut them down and undoing a lot of stuff, so they just kind of had to sit back and not do anything. But now as they're having to govern, they don't understand why they won. They don't understand why they had to wait until South Carolina to start delivering victories. They don't understand why they lost a lot of ground at the end of that campaign. That that race was fully within Trump's capacity to win at the end, and they don't understand that. And it, it's bearing out now in, in the decisions that they're making because they're consistently, you know, any situation where they have a, a chance to sort of build off a more moderate stance here where they could run to the center, sort of like Bill Clinton did after his first failed two years in the White House, and then the plans that he, he did after that, <coughs> after that, excuse me, were much better, and he, he was able to push his poll numbers up. Biden so far has not been able to do that and has not projected any capacity that he is able 
to do that. And if you look, you, know, you look at the polling here and find it. So, so in real clear politics right now, he's sitting at all-time lows. His approval is sitting in the averages at 41.3%. Approval versus 53.4% disapproval. So you're looking you know, at around negative 10 points there. That's a pretty wide divide. This is, you know, when Trump would hang out at around 40%, that was a low ebb for him. He typically hung out between the 42 to 45 to 6 range. Uh, 44 was was basically his, I'm, you know, I'm just kind of doing nothing. This has been a quiet week. I'm going to sit here at 44. Uh, Biden has fallen below that. And he's not showing any capacity to sort of rebound a little bit and sort of have a good news moment here. Uh, his ceiling right now in the sports. So if you just so these are obviously averages, but his ceiling in these polls, if you look at them consistently, you know often when you're looking at the polls, you're looking at the divide. How many? How, what are the different? You know, is there a five point difference between the approval and disapproval? Is there a, you know a ten point difference? You know, what's what's the range here? And that's interesting by itself. But when you're looking at that, what you see is a consistent trend where his ceiling and approval is sitting right at forty four percent. So, like, there's one poll that may say, well, there's only a five-point difference between approval and disapproval, but it'll show him at 44% and 49% disapproval. So there's only that, there's that five-point there, but Biden can't get higher than 44% approval in the polls. Some of them are as low as 36%, so I don't actually know where his, his floor is at the moment, but his ceiling right now has dropped, and he can't get above 44% in these polls. And on Election Day in Virginia, he was right at around 42%. And... That's not where you want a president to be if you're trying to win a race. You do not want your president sitting at 42% because that's going to be a a drag on your numbers as the incumbent party. Uh, The other thing that, that, uh, beyond Biden, looking at the generic ballot, the Republicans have a 4.2 point edge on the generic ballot. Now, that's big because, generally speaking, on the generic ballot, when you're, when you're just asking a person, do you, would you vote for a Democrat or Republican in this race without a name attached to it? Generally speaking, if you're doing a national poll, Democrats have between a three to five point advantage in any poll. All you know, if the race was even, I would expect Democrats to have a three to five point lead. So when Republicans are tied or have a lead in the generic ballot, that is monumental. You have to read that as slightly higher than what it actually is. When the average is, it's telling you, you know, they've got about a four-point lead in the generic ballot. You've got to read that as about, a, you know, if this were Democrats, this would be about a six- to eight-point advantage for them. This is a very decisive reading that we're seeing in the generic ballot polls right here, where Republicans are averaging around 46%, and Democrats are below 42%. They're sitting at 41.8% in the generic ballot. And that generic is underneath and underperforming Joe Biden's numbers at at 41 point, uh, well, it's a little bit higher, 41.3 versus 41.8. So half a point higher, these generic things are. So they're performing, uh, the generic Democrat is seen as just maybe half of a point, maybe better than Joe Biden. So that's why the approval rate numbers matter, because you're not going to outperform your president. And if you are, you're a really good candidate, but you're not going to outperform it by that that much. It's because people are going to ascribe to you what the top of the ticket is. And again, if, you, if you've got that kind of a lead, Republicans are probably looking at winning three to four Senate race, races or, at, you know, 
taking three to four away from Democrats and adding it to the Republican side, and then looking at 40 to 50 House seats gained. Uh, and that's just, that, that's probably a conservative number on the House seats. And I'm just, I'm leaning more conservative towards that because the House is so closely divided. It's not like when you're looking at this in 2010 or 94, where, there were, where Republicans were at a distinct disadvantage, where there was a lot of ground they had to make up. Uh, there's not as much ground to make up here. You only need a handful of, of votes to get to the majority here. So you're, you're kind of down where you would need to get have one of those massive waves. But even if you got that 40 to 50 number, that would give you a 40 to 50 vote, you know, you know, majority in the House, which is massive. So even that is a big change. And, and the Senate is, is even larger because if Republicans regain the Senate in 2022 decisively, and then expand on that in 24, there, there is a, a non-zero percent chance that Republicans maintain hold of the Senate for the rest of this decade. That's kind of what Democrats are staring down the barrel at here. They are very nervous about how this midterm is going to go because it could decide things for a long way to go. Sort of like how 2010 was very decisive with how the rest of the decade went and you didn't have, Democrats did not regain the House until 2018. So that was eight years out of power. They had, and they've just had it in these brief stints too. Republicans are consistently holding the House. They may consistently hold the Senate now. And that is bad news if you're a Democrat. Now, the caveat to all that is always recruitment it matters. It matters what kind of candidates you're putting up here. Um, so this is also a long time off. You know, news can change. The subjects that our people are going to be caring about could change. Uh, and, and so who you're going to be voting for, it's not going to be a generic. It's best if you're a Republican, if everyone sees you as a generic, you don't want to be a crazy because then that's going to, to detract from you. But the Republicans stand a very good chance of making a lot of inroads in the upcoming year. And so far, you know, I talk about how it's, it's a long time off and it's true. And the reason you say that is because there could be a new cycle that benefits Democrats. But so far... In his presidency, and I know his administration would disagree with this, but this is the truth so far, Joe Biden has not generated one positive news cycle yet in his favor. Every single one, he has failed. He has failed in the public's view on the pandemic, that he has failed on the economy, he's failed on the supply chain. Uh, his reaction to, to the Rittenhouse trial started out great. It's going to end up as a failure here, and people are not going to view it kindly because his initial Joe Biden's re- initial read was correct sort of tack towards the middle, and his White House staff, which tacks more to the left, is what's going to harm him here because they're going to say, why don't you just tack to the middle more? That's what we want. So it is notable, and the reason I bring the Rittenhouse story back up, it is notable that notable that the White House has fumbled their response to that because this could have been in a situation where they correctly navigated a new cycle and maybe generated a little positive, uh, new, you know, new cycle here for, for Biden, but because they've decided to come in and, and spike their own footballs on this and, and make their own de- declarations here, they are once again handicapping Biden's capacity to appeal more towards independent voters, your moderate voters, and, and that matters. Because when you look at all these polls, the one consistent thing is that he is losing those voters in droves. The first thing that happens is you'll see his approval rating drop, people are more undecided, and then those undecided start converting into disapproval numbers. 
That's sort of been the transition here. It's been approval to undeclared to disapprove. And the more of that undecided crowd that converts to a disapproval number, the better chances Republicans have moving forward. And, you know, (laughs) Democrats, they need anything here. Uh, You know, you've got, and I'm going to bring him up, because you've got Beto O'Rourke running again statewide in Texas. I don't know why he's running. I mean, I I kind of get it. He wants to stay relevant because he's no longer relevant. But Beto O'Rourke in 2022 is basically, his campaign is DOA. He, in, in the presidential primaries, again, I don't know why he ran there because it was very clear no one cared about him in that race. But in any event, he said openly that he was going to take everybody's guns. He said he was going to take away AR-15s. You cannot run on a far-left gun confiscation platform in the state of Texas in a year that's going to trend towards Republicans. You cannot do that. That is just a big, unforced error that he deserves to be hit on the head with over and over again. And I think if you look at Greg Gabbitt's polls, the governor of Texas there, he's kind of lost a little bit of ground there. But I don't know that it's going to matter because Beto O'Rourke is going to be so unlikable in this race. In a blue wave year in 2018, Democrats still lost to Ted Cruz and still lost ground with Hispanics and other minority groups. The same thing happened in 2020, and Democrats are losing ground. They may have had a shot to turn Texas purplish or, or you know, purplish, maybe slight tinges of blue in 2018. That may have very, the door on that chance may have very well slammed shut. We'll see over the next decade, but the way things are turning out now, I don't know that they're going to be able to do any better than they did in 2018. And they lost to Ted Cruz there. And Ted Cruz is a pretty weak candidate. And that's amazing to say because that's a very red state. So Beto O'Rourke is the wrong messenger here. He is not a generic Democrat, and he's going to have a lot of baggage for all those voters, and I don't think they're going to go for him. But he will serve. Thankfully, I mean, if you're Republican, you love it, because he's going to serve as a money pit, where out-of-state Democrats are going to funnel all kinds of money and donation to him because they love him. They like the idea of challenging Republicans in Texas. And so that's going to siphon a lot of resources away from other Democrats who are going to need it to survive in these races and Beto O'Rourke is going to help strangle a lot of them out because he's going to be the focus and not your, you know, your House races or your other your, your Senate races where you're going to need these in other places if you're a Democrat. So you've got that. Over the next few months, you know, aside from that, there are going to be more and more uh, stories about redistricting and, and what those new districts are going to look like. I'm still waiting to see what the ones here in Tennessee are going to look like. Um, I am... I'm like 60% convinced, I think, at this point, that they're going to divide up Nashville into different districts. Uh, The main reason, I think, is because I don't think the current Democrat in the Nashville district is going to survive a primary challenge. Uh, And and so if you're going to have, you know, an AOC type representing that district, Republicans in the state, it's like, well, Jim Cooper's one thing. A, you know, if possible Democratic Socialist in the state of Tennessee, that's another. So we're just going to split this district up. And if you're a Democrat and you want to win, you're going to have to be a lot more sane than one of those people. That's effectively what they're saying. And I can just tell you, 
when it comes to Tennessee, the Tennessee Democratic Party is just a non-entity, and it's a non-entity by the choice. They have chosen that they only want to represent the values of the inner core of downtown Nashville, and they don't care about any other group or entity outside of that. It's one of the more interesting decisions that I've ever seen. I had, I had a, 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 a Democratic lawyer that I know. He was trying to tell me one time that you know the Democratic Party in Tennessee, it's rebuilding. And, and, you know, you needed to look at some of those Nashville council races because there were some really talented people there. And I just laughed at him because that is not true. That is not true. They are not going to win a statewide race. I mean, there are a lot of my Democratic friends here who believe that the former mayor of Nashville, Megan Berry, who was uh, pretty far left progressive, they thought that she could win a statewide race. And I'm not sure she could hit 30 percent in a statewide race. If you want to win in the state, you're going to have to look more like Phil Bredesen and less like your crazies. And that is something that the state Democratic Party does not want to listen to. And they basically rejected that. So that's one of the reasons that Republicans are going to continue dominating politics here. That's fine with me. I would prefer that. I think they're doing a good job here. But we're also seeing that more broadly in a lot of other states. That's what happens when you have a Beto O'Rourke running instead of a more moderate Democrat. When you've got one of those crazies running in any difficult year, you're not going to fare quite as well. So that's sort of, you know, an overview of this past week. Um, I don't think, you know, the Rittenhouse case, again, I, I don't think it matters in the large scope of thing. I don't think it, it's going to change anything overall on the political landscape. There are obviously larger issues happening, supply chain issues, inflation, et cetera, and so forth. Um People are going to use it in discussions on cultural war issues, but overall, it's not something that's going to have long-term impacts or long-term ramifications, at least in my view. So people are trying to pretend otherwise, but most of those, I know on the right at least, most of those are people trying to cash in on Rittenhouse's name and this moment. And that's a sad thing. That's why I kind of hope he steps out of the public limelight here. But I don't think this changes anything broader that's happening in larger politics. So that's all I've got uh, for this week's show. Uh, didn't have a lot of them audio that I could come across that I liked quite a bit. The only thing I, I, w- I would recommend, I recently came across a YouTube channel called Biographics. Uh, I've been reading a lot of, of uh, histories and and philosophy texts and, and some other things that, that reference a lot of older histories. And so occasionally I've had a question like, oh, you know, I remember that person reading about him a long time ago in school. Who is that? Uh, and, I, and I came across this YouTube channel called Biographics, and they have 15, 20-minute overviews that give you kind of, you know, here's here everything you need to know about this famous historical character, and here's what they did, and, you know, so on and so forth. So it gives you a nice quick rundown. You could go to someplace like Wikipedia for that, I know. Uh, but sometimes I just don't want to read Wikipedia, and I like this biographics channel because you get, you know, they show you what the person looked like, you get some maps if they were involved in a lot of, of battles and stuff. So it's a lot of cool stuff. And so if you're looking for some history stuff, I do recommend the biographics channel. 
That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute and the newsletter goes out early Friday mornings. So make sure to sign up before that and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.